Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our shows, we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm your host, Rachel Tausendfreund. Today, we're going to talk about the economy, which is on everyone's mind as the pandemic is slowing down and also as Europe is facing its biggest war in decades. Top economists and officials say the global economy is in a weaker position this year than expected. So what impact are the pandemic and the crisis in Ukraine having on businesses and consumers in Germany and the United States? And are the steps key economic players are taking enough to prevent a further downslide? We are joined online today by Jacob Kierkegaard, senior fellow in the GMF's Brussels office and at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And joining us online from Essen is Sebastian Dolin, director of the Macroeconomic Policy Institute of the Hans Böckler Foundation. Welcome, gentlemen. Our pleasure. Good morning. Sebastian, let's start with you. The Bundesbank reported that Omicron brought record infections and that dragged down the economic activity. Are we headed for another recession in Germany? Well, frankly, I was a bit surprised by that statement from the Bundesbank because, uh, I mean, we had a fall in GDP in the fourth quarter of 2021, but all the leading indicators, all the data which is coming in looks quite better for the first quarter. Of course, we had record numbers of infections, but we had rising uh, production, we, we had rising uh, business confidence. So I was surprised by that. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how much they really know more than we do, because I mean, it's February, and uh, this is in the middle of the first quarter, and there basically isn't much data in. That being said, I mean, even if we have a small growth in GDP in the first quarter, we still have that risk of the Ukraine war um, hitting the economy in the quarters going forward. And frankly, we don't know how that is going to play out. What we know from other conflicts in the past is that they have always burdened business confidence. Uh, and though companies are putting off investment and the consumers are usually a bit more resilient, but um, that being said, they're not more resilient if you have an energy price shock, as we are seeing now. And oil is, is one issue, and the oil price has gone up as well. But for Germany at the moment, I think it's more crucial that the natural gas price has gone up and that there is even, I mean, fear of supply disruptions. Um, Germany gets a quarter of its primary energy from uh, natural gas, and most of that comes from Russia. Um, a lot of that comes from, from a pipeline going through Ukraine, and this natural gas price has already from middle of last year to December, January, roughly quadrupled in price. So it went from less than 20 euros a megawatt hour to 70. And this morning it was above 100. And that means that the heating bills for the households heating with gas uh, might more than double this year. So that being said, we, we frankly don't know how the Ukraine conflict is playing out and what that means for the next quarters. And of course, there is a significant risk that the conflict escalates even more and the German economy might uh, go back into recession. If I sort of summarize what you're saying, there were some signs that maybe we could be looking at a recovery. But um, considering what the Bundesbank said and now the uncertainty of war, it looks probably not very good for a recovery. Well, it's a bit of a difficult issue because it all is based on the question, what's happening in Ukraine? I mean, if this is a short war and everyone settles at some front line, then we still have a good chance that we are going to see a recovery in the second half of the year or from the summer onwards. If this drags on and, uh, well, um, energy prices remain high, then we won't see that. 
Jacob, what about a recession in the United States? I mean, consumer confidence in February fell to a five-month low with fewer consumers planning to buy things like homes, cars, or go on vacation over the next six months, given the concerns about the short-term economic outlook. Well, I mean, I, I think, quite frankly, there aren't that many concerns. The only major concerns is that the United States is going through almost a classical overheating of the economy which in the very short run is not necessarily bad news. You know, the job market is strong, unemployment is low, uh, disposable incomes are high, economic growth is good, but of course, so also is inflation. And the real question going forward is how much is the Federal Reserve going to have to tighten monetary policy to bring down inflation again? And is there a risk that that monetary tightening, which is coming in the, you know, very shortly, uh, is it going to be the cause of a recession possibly in 2023, 2024? We don't know. But right now, I think, you know, there is very clearly a complete disconnect between consumer confidence numbers and quite frankly, what's going on in the uh, American uh, macroeconomy. Yes, uh, people are facing higher uh, prices, but economic growth and, and job creation is strong. So at this stage of the pandemic, are we still seeing signs of its impact on the economy? The pandemic uh, has several effects. Uh, first of all, it is still the case that there are large numbers of Americans who have left the workforce, at least in part because of fear in, of infection. That, of course, creates an even tighter labor market. Uh, it is also the case that the U.S. economy continues to be ravaged, I think is the right word, by you know a significant number of supply chain disruptions, uh, most of which remain pandemic related. And then uh, it certainly is still the case that the U.S. economy remains flush, I think, again, I would use, with the stimulus spending that was unleashed by the pandemic. So certainly uh, what is going on in the U.S. economy right now is overwhelmingly related to the pandemic. But I think it is also fair to say that going forward, as the Omicron wave recedes also in the United States, and we are not going to have any more additional fiscal stimulus, certainly if I read the political tea leaves in Congress uh, rightly, then we are putting the pandemic behind us. And we're now going to, with monetary policy tightening, to have to address the imbalances that the, in many ways, in my opinion, successful pandemic responses have nonetheless generated. So you were just talking about these, um, you know, fiscal packages, and you said there are probably no more coming. The end of that and all the other stopgap measures. Are we already seeing the effects of those ending, or is that something that we're waiting for that's going to come, that we start to see the effects of all of those measures ending? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's surprising. I would have imagined that certainly consumer spending on durable goods, but also consumer spending in general, would have already reflected that much of the uh, you know fiscal stimulus has run out for many Americans. But that's not what we're seeing. You know, consumer spending, et cetera, remains very strong and is the primary driver, in my opinion, of the inflationary pressures that we're seeing in the U.S. economy. 
And this is another, quite frankly, disconnect between the, I would go as far as to say, highly politicized consumer confidence numbers. I mean, basically, consumer confidence numbers today is more or less a different way of asking, are you happy with the president or not? But there is no real direct connection there anymore. But again, if you look at the numbers, it seems that on people's spending behavior, at least, the effects of the stimulus packages have not yet worn off, although uh, the day of reckoning, if you like, certainly is fast approaching. Well, Sebastian, let me ask you a little bit more about something that Jacob said, and that was the issue of supply chains and the bottlenecks that are created or have been existing there. Is this actually a real phenomenon or is it a crutch being used by some officials as some critics contend? I mean, at least for the German economy, it's a very important uh, and relevant issue. Our car industry, for example, they have order books which are so full, we haven't seen that level of order books uh, ever. Uh, and still, they have been producing at 70% of pre-pandemic production levels. And the reason is, well, they have the workers, they have the plants. The reason is just they couldn't get hold of semiconductors. And that is really what has dragged down the German economy in the second half of 2021. I mean, of course, we had the Omicron wave, but if you look into the details, it's really production numbers, manufacturing production. It's the car industry, and that is very big in Germany. And uh, I mean, it's also tool builders, um, machinery, uh, capital goods, because everywhere you need semiconductors and there just weren't enough around. That being said, also in construction, we had the problem. And we know, we know that from surveys uh, among the companies, they couldn't get hold of enough wood and whatever else they needed for construction. And that, of course, slowed down the recovery. So it's real, at least in Germany. I don't know that much about the United States. Uh, and it has been really relevant. And one of the hopes we're having for this year is that these problems are abating and so that will help the manufacturing recovery. But what is it going to take for those bottlenecks to ease? In other words, I mean, which is there a particular country that's responsible for this or a particular area of transport? What is going to be required in order to fix this problem? I mean, with the semiconductors, um, one of the problems was that we had some Asian countries where when there was a COVID outbreak, they basically shut down the plants and the area around the plants. We had some ports which were closed down, but I mean, semiconductors are relatively small um, and you can transport them by plane. So it was mostly uh, these disruptions there. And uh, then the second point was that the German car manufacturers, they had not ordered enough. They had thought demand would would collapse uh, in the COVID crisis, and they had thought they could always buy semiconductors on the spot markets. And then the consumer demand shifted towards home office equipment, uh, video games, and so on. And so then the, the semiconductors just weren't there, and they couldn't get hold of it. Okay, interesting. The other issue we hear a lot about is inflation. Sebastian, I'm going to ask you this one, too. In general, also in the States, people are talking about inflation. Germany in particular is always really focused on inflation. On the other hand, European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde, I believe, has warned against reacting too strongly to inflation in the short term. So what's the picture with inflation and how worried should we be? I think, and, and Jacob can probably say more about that, we, we have this difference between the U.S. and, and Europe here. Um, in the U.S., I think inflation is already pretty broad-based, I would say, and wages have picked up. Uh, in the euro area, we mostly still have an energy price shock, and we have um, these problems uh, with the supply chains. Um, and so the, there's a difference. We don't see this wage growth in Europe so far. And of course, there's a risk if you have a vulnerable economy and, and, and you have this energy price shock, which 
tracks demand from consumers and pushes up prices. If you then tighten too soon, you are in the risk of pushing the economy back into recession. And then next year, you have an undershooting of inflation. Um, and that's clearly what, what the ECB doesn't want, especially because it made this mistake twice in 2008 and 2011, when it raised the interest rates uh, prematurely and cast the economy back into recession twice. Just a follow-up question. When you say an undershooting of inflation, you mean that inflation is then too low, and that's a different kind of problem. Yes. I mean, in Europe, we we have had a decade or even a bit more of inflation undershooting the target of 2% of the ECB and also flirting with deflation from time to time. And that is very difficult for central banks because they run the risk of being powerless uh, at that point. And therefore, this is also something at least professional economists would like to prevent. I mean, in, in, in the public debate, it's not always seen as a problem, but nevertheless, yeah, one doesn't want that. Jacob, do you want to add to that, uh, to what Sebastian was saying? No, I mean, I basically agree with uh, everything he said. I think the real risk is premature tightening in the euro area uh, because we should uh, also recognize that in a situation not dissimilar in many ways to the United States, European labor markets, the euro area unemployment rate is at record lows. Uh, but more importantly, the employment rate is also at record highs, uh, which is a situation very dissimilar to the United States. So basically, right now we have, despite or perhaps even to some extent because of uh, certainly because of the pandemic stimulus uh, and the more rapid exit from Omicron, etc., in many countries, and also to some extent even the inflationary pressures, we have precisely the kind of job-rich growth that we have been wanting for the euro area to have for many years. So the question is, if you looked at only historical data, does that inevitably mean overheating and a wage uh, price spiral, etc.? So far, as, as Sebastian said, that has not happened. Uh, and I'm personally quite skeptical that it will happen. And I hope that the ECB, therefore, will be very hesitant as it begins to consider tightening monetary policy. Also because we are now in the face of a major war in Europe. And certainly a war that I think could have potentially significant negative implications in the short run on en energy supply that Sebastian also mentioned. And, you know, beginning a monetary policy tightening cycle prematurely under those geopolitical circumstances, I think constitutes a very significant risk for the ECB. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the effect that Russia's actions and Vladimir Putin's words are having on the global economy. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. Hello, this is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. 
Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8-10-minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. The Germany Experience Podcast, where foreigners share their experiences of living in Germany. Supermarkets here drive me insane. But I just said, what are you staring at? No, stop it. Stop it. She's crying. There was a shepherd leading a flock of sheep (laughs) down the street. And they give us some advice. Find ways to stay connected to home. Learn how to drive through the roadworks. If you really want to connect with people, learning the language is the key to that. The Germany Experience Podcast. Life in Germany through the eyes of outsiders. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway with the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Joining us from Brussels are Jacob Kierkegaard, Senior Fellow in GMF's Brussels office. And joining us online from Essen is Sebastian Dulin, Director of the Macroeconomic Policy Institute of the Hans Böckler Foundation. And I'm Rachel Tausenfreund. We are talking about the economic forecast for 2022, given the pandemic and more recently, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Jacob, what impact has the instability around the Russia-Ukraine crisis been having on the economy? Have we already been seeing things? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that there has been a a significant, what economists like to call risk premium, built into global oil and gas prices, Uh, certainly the global oil price, basically fearing that a potential future loss of supply uh, of natural gas through Ukraine and other pipelines from Russia and Russia's ability or even willingness to uh, supply the global oil market. So from that perspective, this has certainly already happened. It's true also in other commodity markets. Both Russia and Ukraine are among the largest wheat and grain exporters in the world. This war will certainly disrupt that. And what that means is we are looking at uh, significantly rising food prices globally, which is something that is typically associated with the risk of political instability in many uh, emerging markets. We're seeing it also in other commodity sectors where Russia is a major supplier, some that are also generally important for the uh, European and global economy, palladium, uh, etc. Many of the uh, ingredients, quote unquote, that goes into the green transition come also from Russia. So, uh, no, this is a major negative supply shock for the global economy and one that I fear is going to have also significant political implications around the world. And what about the sanctions? The EU and the US, they already announced in response to Putin's first actions, they announced a package of sanctions. We can expect maybe more to come. Can we already know what will be the effect of the sanction policy in addition to the supplies you're talking about? I mean, we certainly know that the announcement of outright war has been followed by a record decline in Russian stock markets. The value of the ruble, etc., has plunged. To what extent is that a confidence shock or is it the uh, result of the sanctions? I think it's difficult to say. But unfortunately, I have to say I'm regretfully somewhat skeptical that the at least European sanctions are going to honestly amount to that much because we're already seeing 
Many individual member states wanting carve-outs. I mean, rumors is that Italy wants to, you know, they, they don't want to include luxury goods, for instance. You know, they want to sell Prada handbags to Russian customers still. Uh, Belgium, I'm sure, wants to exclude diamonds because of the diamond exchanges here. Obviously, as we've already discussed, natural gas is a major concern, not just for Germany, but for many other uh, member states that are very dependent. And, you know, we have a hunger that is politically beholden to Vladimir Putin. So I'm unfortunately somewhat skeptical that uh, European sanctions are really going to be that disruptive for the Russian war effort. On the other hand, I think the United States has the capacity uh, and likely willingness to do something that is uh, more dramatic uh, with regards to financial system, uh, where, by the way, Europe might, we will see whether or not the Russian uh, banking system will be shut out of the SWIFT global transaction system. I think that's an open question, but certainly something that, in my opinion, should happen. Uh, but the U.S. also have uh, the capacity to use the foreign product, direct product legislation, basically export controls, to deny Russia access to U.S. high technology wherever it's produced in the world. That will shut it out of uh, access to chips, etc. That isn't going to have an immediate effect but will in the uh, medium to long run be a very significant drag on the broader Russian economy, but certainly also on its ability to continue to produce oil and gas at current levels. Sebastian, what about China? Does it stand to benefit from this crisis? I mean, we've talked a little bit about Asia, but specifically China, where does that stand? I mean, of course, China doesn't benefit if the world economy goes into a recession. That's uh, the first point. And I mean, so the, the question is, do they benefit a little bit from maybe redirection of Russian trade towards China? And that's indeed possible. But uh, so for, from an economic point of view, I would say it's less negative for China than for Europe, which is going to bear the blunt of this. The interesting question is, adding on to what Jacob said, um, I mean, sanctions, as far as I remember, have never led in the short term to a country stopping a war effort. So economically, we just have to see how they now hurt, well, the economy of the Western countries. And here, uh, the SWIFT, I think it's you can make the good argument that it's a vital element of a sanction package. But of course, if for SWIFT, Germany and the Europeans cannot pay their gas anymore, then you would expect Russia not to deliver gas. You know, I mean, why should they deliver if they're not paid? Well, let me ask you a follow-up to that because uh, we have talked about energy and what was very daunting, I thought, uh, was a tweet that came from the deputy chair of the Russian Federation Security Council in recent days where he said, welcome to the new world where Europeans soon will pay 2,000 euros per cubic meter of gas. Is this a hollow threat? I mean, what sort of impact are we really looking at with energy and what can the consumer expect and what can the countries uh, in Germ- well, Germany and the European Union expect? I mean, the 2,000 um, euros per cubic meter, that would be about twice the price we have been seeing in future markets this morning. And this is already when we have been now above 100 uh, euros per megawatt hour and and basically a cubic meter is uh, 10 megawatt hours so that would be twice that level and that level already hurts i mean that level is already in wholesale prices about five times what we have seen uh, last year and of course gas has taxes and distribution charges and so on but for consumers that might mean a doubling of of their their heating bill as it is already 
Yeah, and then at, I mean, if there are any supply disruptions, I don't think it's an empty threat. I think you could see that's a forecast. Yeah, and it's not a completely unrealistic forecast. If there are supply disruptions, it's well possible that we are seeing these prices. And then you might have a quadrupling of prices uh, or, or heating bills in these parts of Europe where the people use gas for heating. So then what impact is Nord Stream 2 or the loss of Nord Stream 2 having on this, having uh, for Germany and Russia? I mean, again, the German government makes it sound like it's a done deal, no problem. But it sounds to me if we're talking about a doubling of costs to the consumer, that's a real problem for the German government. It is a problem and it will become a problem because contracts are structured in a way that the consumers have not yet seen that, or at least not all consumers, because the gas suppliers, they can change once a year. Well, for most contracts, so most of them have not yet increased prices, but some have. I mean, uh, I have a colleague who just received a bill that his gas price has tripled. Um, So they're going to feel that over the next month. And of course, that's going to be a political problem here. Nord Stream 2, in my eyes, would not have necessarily changed that because, I mean, pipeline capacities are sufficient at the moment to get the gas to Europe. The problem is the Russians aren't delivering the gas. And I mean, there have been signs that they have been doing so deliberately. So the stocks have been running low in Europe over the winter. And uh, well, more pipeline capacity wouldn't help if one side doesn't send uh, the gas through. Jacob, Sebastian was just talking a lot about the energy picture in Europe um, because of the crisis with Russia. What about the U.S.? I mean, the U.S. dependence on Russian energy is much, much lower, but there is still some imports or there have been imports from Russia. And is this going to affect also energy prices in the United States? Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, certainly, uh, first and foremost, oil prices, global oil prices will be affected by this. Uh, I would expect a significant increase in them, probably well above $100. I think we've already actually this morning seen Brent uh, go above 100 uh, That sorry, would mean what's further increase. Oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> that's the benchmark uh, for most European oil prices. Okay. Uh, there is a, another one for the United States. Bottom line, I would expect major uh, significant upward pressure on oil prices and therefore also on uh, already elevated, you know, prices, gasoline prices for the average U.S. consumer. I would certainly for that reason expect uh, further releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an attempt to lower gas prices in the United States. I would also expect, and we have seen that from the Biden administration that have been actively trying to, uh, you know, call in favors, if you like, with major oil producers, uh, Saudi Arabia and, and others. Uh, he ha- they haven't had much success because at the same time, we are also approaching what is potentially a renegotiation of the Iran nuclear deal, something which Saudi Arabia and other uh, Middle Eastern producers strongly oppose. Uh, but I would expect the Biden administration to have to be much more forceful in its international diplomacy to try to get more oil supply uh, on the markets fast, uh, because otherwise he faces a further deterioration of the domestic political climate in the United States and likely also the overall uh, inflation picture. We've looked at the macroeconomic and political factors, but let me ask each of you a consumer level question to wrap up our show today. Do the economic indicators suggest that this is the time to save or spend, to invest in stocks or bonds, or should we be bracing for worse economic news in the coming months? We can start with Sebastian. 
Oh, I usually don't give investment advice and I'm a very conservative investor myself. Um, so, well, I, I think if you want to keep your standard of living, you have to spend more. Um, and so I would probably do that. I would probably try at least if I have some savings um, to keep my standard of living and don't, uh, well, cut my vacation because I have to pay more for heating. But that's a luxury issue. I, I can I can do so. And I'm, I'm aware not everyone can. Do you think that there will be worse economic news in the coming months? Yes, on inflation, I think there will be worse news than we have seen so far. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, your question was about buying stocks. In, in the past, uh, it has always proved well to buy the stocks at the height of a crisis, you know. And um, so at some point, there might be a good moment to buy into the stock market. But frankly, I don't know when. And if I knew, I, I probably wouldn't produce podcasts and uh, work as a macroeconomist <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Jacob, what about you? Um, time to save or spend? or And also, what kind of economic forecasts are we looking at in the coming months? No, I mean, I largely share uh, Sebastian's economic forecast. I think the uh, outbreak of war in Ukraine is going to have uh, further upward pressure on inflation. But at the same time, I would say that certainly in Europe, but also in the United States, that the overall macroeconomic picture, the labor market is very strong. So I would therefore not choose to, uh, as Sebastian also said, I wouldn't necessarily cut back. I would absolutely make sure that I spend the money that I otherwise would have. Uh, when it comes to investing, well, I mean, I think overall, uh, particularly in the United States, we are heading for a uh, significant increase in interest rates. This will take place after a very long time of uh, zero or very, very low interest rates in the United States. And we know that historically, when you have uh, rapid increases in interest rates, that tends to hurt stock prices because it turns out that many companies face uh, greater troubles at uh, managing their debt levels than they perhaps thought. So uh, in some ways, I would certainly say that given the monetary policy outlook in the United States, it is certainly my view that despite the macro forecasts, that the stock market in the United States looks awfully expensive. Okay. We touched on a lot of really big topics, and unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here, although we would have content for two more hours. Um, thank you very much to GMF's Jacob Kierkegaard in Brussels and in Essen, Sebastian Dulin of the Macroeconomic Policy Institute of the Hans Buchler Foundation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund's Transatlantic Takeaway. I'm your host, Rachel Tausenfreund. And I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali, and our intern is Abigail Megenson. Common Ground is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All Common Ground and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcasts' websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.